We're in Beirut for a new episode of the Beirut Banyan, and we're joined by Aya Skandarani. Aya is a correspondent at The National, and we discuss the nine-month marker following the Beirut port blast and the challenge of marking without justice. Our conversation includes the difficulty of open debate online, including Clubhouse, and the precautions taken when covering Hezbollah-related issues in Lebanon. We also talk about the emotions involved when covering a story at home and the challenge journalists face when confronting misinformation with fact-based reporting. This podcast is made possible by the generosity of listeners and viewers like you. Kindly consider a contribution through Patreon or PayPal. Links are in the details box. Any amount is appreciated. And follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The handle, The Beirut Banyan. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And to stay updated with video releases, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Thanks for listening, and thanks for watching. I'm Rani Shatar, and this is The Beirut Banyan. comes to markers and the importance of markers in, in recent memory within the Lebanese context, uh, I find myself going back in time to articles that I've read, sort of uh, capturing the moment, capturing the difficulty, the, um, the horrible pain that everyone is going through. And there's a few outlets that I turn to regularly. Um, on Today, Daily Star, and The National. And The National has a great team in Beirut. So economics, politics, the port blast. Today's the nine-month marker since the port blast. It's been three months since Lukman Slim's assassination. I woke up and I was reading The National archives. And your name appears regularly. I should say I'm quite lucky that I've met you in real life. Uh, we, we've walked around Beirut several times. We've shared our own sort of insights on what's happening. So in a way, I feel a bit privileged that I can consider you a friend. And I also think that your reporting is, is astute and it's, cap- it's documented the last at least six months of all that's happened. You know, it's strange. You feel like, you know, nothing has changed when it comes to accountability. You know, we still don't know who killed Lukman Slim. We still don't know who's responsible for the explosion. We have so little details. And actually, the only details we have come from journalists, whether they're, right. you know, local journalists or uh, investigators uh, who've, you know, looked into the blast, uh, you know, from another country. Um, but, but at the same time, you feel like uh, you become immune to it because there's, you know, there's this nothing changes but at the same time there's there's so much noise going on as well and right. it gets drowned you know in that and is that noise primarily is that actual noise that you're hearing as a reporter on the streets or is this online noise whether it's in echo chambers or even for that matter at times there are battles online taking place so where where is the noise for you at least 
I think it's a bit of both. Like you have debates that come on, that, you know, come on Clubhouse, on Twitter, on all these uh, social media platforms. You have like these trending hashtags, and sometimes you have people from different parties or different currents that will clash. Mm. But you also have like political drama in Lebanon, scandals like that scandal, for example, about uh, you know dead fish being sold. Uh, right. Yes. Uh, being sold to consumers ahead of Easter when people eat fish. Like you have all these things going on. Um, like this is this is a, a silly example maybe because it has nothing to do with the fort, but you have also a lot of like political drama. So. And, and so political that, drama, you, you just mean the usual political drama that has been engulfing us for at least since the protests, if not maybe even earlier. Is that sort of the, just the usual, the usual bickering online that, people are frustrated and they're expressing themselves you have people who are who are talking about their experiences online and maybe taking political sides but you mm. feel like in a way when politicians are also not very transparent they also encourage this noise right and when they're also bickering amongst each other that also encourages noise and kind of people forget like the main thing they're supposed to be focusing on and they get, you know, trapped in these scandals and who's actually blocking government formation? Is it Hariri or Thawun or is it, uh, like, is Basil really running for presidency? Which, these are big questions, but because there's no transparency, because there's so much bickering going on, people kind of tend to focus on these, these issues, which I feel are more political drama than actual change, instead but, of focusing on the big picture. But I like what you said, it's politicians that are, increasing that rhetoric online or encouraging it at least that it's coming from politicians not necessarily protesters that have elevated their 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 demands online or or anything like that it's sort of a rebuttal sort of uh the political class pushing back online and i didn't think of it that way that it's uh it's almost a um it's muffling the demands by throwing in other things that are not really at the core of the protest movement. Yes, I think people who are protesting or even you know, regular people who aren't protesting or are not activists, they still have the same demands. We still all right. want to know what happened. You know, we still all want justice to be served, but um, there's noise going on. And uh, I don't know, I feel like also the paralysis that's going on you know, in parallel to the noise also discourages people just Hmm. they feel like they have no power like okay we protested once twice ten times I see it around me actually like even like if you're living in Lebanon when you talk to your friends when you talk to your family they'll tell you like we feel like it's not going to change anything um I don't know if this is still uh no no that but that (laughs) it is because in a way it's defining what paralysis feels like or it's, it's really just the experience of paralysis, how it trickles down. And I'm, and I'm glad that you're emphasizing that this does dissuade protesters. It has a crippling effect. And I mean, a year and a half post-October 17, any, any population would be exhausted. And then if you add in all yeah. the other tragedies that we're now marking, I think it's almost, um, it's almost impossible to expect more from any population 
But you're mentioning noise, and I like that you're emphasizing that you're hearing it or you're experiencing it, and it is elevated in in a negative way. Whether it's the political class, in a way pushing back on social media, and you referenced Clubhouse as well. And I'm glad you did that because segues, I look for them wherever I can. That's the best segue possible (laughs) to get into a recent piece that you wrote. I'm going to title the, uh, the article. It's Lebanon... Hezbollah critics report threats on Clubhouse app. Opponents of the Iran-backed group thought they had found a safe forum in the audio-only site. My understanding of Clubhouse, and actually did an episode about Clubhouse, more, more to do with maybe the security concerns, the, the technology of the app, and, and not just in Lebanon, in the region, and how perhaps there's attempts at censorship. But I didn't think that Clubhouse, I, I assumed wrongly that Clubhouse was largely immune to that type of rhetoric. And I, after reading your piece, I realized that no, I'm probably just in the wrong rooms or I'm not where the conversations are really happening. And I thought the, the article in a way exposes something that's larger than just obviously Clubhouse and the issues discussed on Clubhouse. It seems like this is an issue that has crippled political debate period in Lebanon. And I'm curious what motivated you to write this piece. There is a central component, which is Hezbollah critics facing backlash and facing intimidation and threats. But what made it, what motivated you to write that piece to begin with? Is this something that you were experiencing on Clubhouse, sort of entering these rooms and, and aware that this was happening? And I'm, I'm curious where the, where the motive was, because I found it to be really, really important terrain, given that Clubhouse has taken off. And my understanding, which I got wrong, is that it would be a safer safer place to criticize or support or whatever, have those healthier exchanges without the fear of threat and intimidation. No, it's interesting because I was talking about this with my dad a few days ago um, when we were talking about Clubhouse. He's still not on it, so he has no clue what it is. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I, and, you know, I was discussing this article with him because I told him, like, you're going to ask me a question about it. And he told me that when the internet first became a thing many, many moons ago, he remembers that I don't, um, people had the same feeling <laughs> that, uh, wow, we have this, uh, this safe space, this, uh, this haven of freedom, we can say whatever we want, uh, you know, no consequences. And then, you know, the internet turned out to be the internet. Like, if you say something, there will be consequences, of course. Um, people and you're you're actually putting your word out there everyone will see you know what you've tweeted for example what you've posted um and it has real life consequences and i think the same applies to clubhouse but it's just because it's a new app we're just discovering this now and we're you know (laughs) being Mm. uh, shocked again right um also because there's like a very intimate something very intimate about clubhouse you hear other people's voices literally Right. You know, when a social media app says that, you know, you can put your opinion, make your voice be heard here. It's like you're literally making your voice be heard. Right. Um, now, to, to come back to the motivation, which you were asking me about, um, I, I actually, uh, I use Clubhouse a little bit, but I don't speak a lot on it because I'm shy by nature. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> 
But what happened is that actually, you know, someone I know from another social media platform, um, we were talking about something else. And then he, he actually told me like, oh, by the way, um, I also received threats on Clubhouse. And so I was, I was, a bit, I was a bit shocked, you know, because Clubhouse has it with freedom. You've had all these positive articles on it. Absolutely. Um, my and colleague actually wrote a really nice piece about it. And I'm sorry to interrupt, um, but I, I hope I remember this right. It's just yesterday or two days ago, New York Times wrote a, a powerful piece on Clubhouse, but it, it was a nuanced sort of piece on how opponents in many ways are able to use the app and, and their detractors are able to hit back. But, but sorry to interrupt, but it, it has really become a very, very important uh, addition to how people are exchanging ideas. But I'll let you get back to the, the motive of the, uh, the piece. Um, no, you're absolutely right. Um, so when he told me this, I, I started digging in a little bit and asking other people, seeing if they had the same experiences and came across a few people who actually were threatened on there. Mm. And there are people who are you know, known to be speaking, to be outspoken against Hezbollah on other platform, actually. Mm -hmm. And from what I understood from them, the reason why they were targeted is because, um, is because they were actually having debates you know, with people who didn't think the same as them. Right. Um, right. And this is like one of the really powerful things about Clubhouse. You can meet people who, who are so different from you. If you see a room with like, I don't know, let's say you're, you're, you're a pro Hariri person and you go into a room where everyone is against Hariri, mm -hmm. you can like have a debate with them, uh, exchange political ideas. Sometimes if the moderator handles it well, it doesn't, it doesn't escalate into, you know, full Absol chaos. And my, my, I'm kind of like you on Clubhouse, although I, I have participated on, on uh, I've, 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 sort of been on clubhouse as as a guest and and i've i've participated as as just the audience i'm not as shy as you perhaps by default i do this now for a living so you can't be too shy but i i did get the feeling that the usual uh debates that are not done healthily on tv or even in uh, sort of mainstream outlets that they are handled better on clubhouse that you mm -hmm. can have an, a, like you were saying, you can have a Hadidi supporter and Hadidi opponent talking in a measured tone on Clubhouse, mm -hmm. which is, it's, it's almost, uh, it's refreshing to hear that kind of leveled discussion with, without, without shouting. And the moderator, like you said, has to do it in a way that works. But I think for the large part, my interactions with Clubhouse is that that's been the norm. But I didn't, I didn't know that Hezbollah or the issue of Hezbollah was taking a very different sort of tone on, on Clubhouse. I was unaware of it. It's interesting because they seem to have an important presence there, at least from what uh, the people I spoke to told me. Mm -hmm. um, actually, I've, I've, I've entered rooms, like several rooms where you had, um, for example, users who were either pro Hezbollah or pro Amal, who was their main Shia ally in Lebanon. Um, and you had like Arab users in there, you know, Saudis, people from the Gulf who were asking them questions. And it was like a kind of, you know, question uh, debate sort of thing. So they're, they're yeah. actually active on there. Mm. Um, you have, you know, some of them who are more, 
I guess, prone to being asked questions and to debate. And but in the case, in the cases I documented, it wasn't uh, it wasn't so much a debate as uh, you know people being threatened or uh, also like people being told that they were spies. Um, a lot of right. people I spoke to felt like this was making their blood halal, basically. Like when you're telling someone you're a spy, it means it's okay to kill them because it's the patriotic thing to do. Um, so they felt really threatened. Is this just, in a way, honing in on a larger problem and a problem that pervades Lebanese politics in general? And this could even go further, probably go much deeper, even among the opponents of the status quo, the opposition parties that have emerged, opposition voices that are using Clubhouse. Is this the one issue that you just simply cannot bring up in Lebanese discourse? That the moment Hezbollah comes up, the whole thing stops. It, mm. could, be a, it could be a larger than life movement, October 17 and, and the aftermath. It could be even, and speculation, could be even pushing for investigations into assassinations or take it all the way. It could be why we're not able to discuss the port blast thoroughly. And nine months later, there's no investigation or there's nothing impressive. And like you said earlier, that you're marked. If you're being accused as an agent, you're marked. Whether or not that translates from internet to reality is something else, but that at least it has a silencing effect. I think it's interesting because it really is a taboo topic, not just Hezbollah, actually specifically Hezbollah's weapons. Um, it is very taboo in Lebanon. I remember before actually moving to Beirut, because I was in Abu Dhabi before moving here, also working for the National. Um, I wrote like a small article about people who were protesting at the time. A lot of people were protesting, but who supported Hezbollah and who said that, well, they're the resistance and we don't want like the issue of the arms of Hezbollah to be discussed, but we want change in Lebanon. And I feel like even for, for groups, for example, protest groups uh, who really want change, the one issue dividing these, you know, hundreds of groups I think we have now is really the issue of Hezbollah and right. their weapons. But I think even, even the issue of Hezbollah and their weapons, this shows you how internationalized uh, Lebanese politics are in a way. Right. Because when we say Hezbollah and their weapons, we're also talking about Hezbollah's backers, yeah, so the Iranian regime, um, and you know their arch enemies in the region, Saudi Arabia, who drew back, etc. There you have like the whole divide. People, I don't know, they can't seem to go beyond that and to think of their own country first. Do you feel it on your own, in, in your own experience, in your own work? where there's a bit of, where there's maybe some hostility or attempts at censoring. I mean, do you feel any pushback when you're writing articles that even touch on this subject? Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm curious as just a typical reporter who has to cover the news. And, and obviously this is something that comes up regularly. Do you, send, do you feel it in your own work? Yes, actually I do. Hello. And we'll have a huge following and I've been a reporter for six months. So <laughs> I get a huge amount of pushback. Um, but for example, the other day I covered, you know, basic news stories about these uh, 
pomegranates filled with captagon that were discovered in Saudi Arabia. Yes. So I wrote a story about um, the interior minister, Mohammed Fahmi, saying that they caught two people involved in this whole scandal. Um, it was a very basic news story, just saying what happened hmm. uh, and saying that, you know, at the time, Saudi authorities said Le Lebanon has to show that it can control the drug trade for them right. to lift a ban on Lebanese produce that they had put at the time because of the whole Captagon issue. And I received a message. Uh, actually, it's not, it wasn't even on Twitter because I posted this article on Twitter, but I received a message on my Facebook from someone telling me like, who told you, uh, who told you this is enough for the Saudis to remove the ban? And I'm like, I don't even know you, who are you? Why did you look for me on Facebook to send me this message for something I'm not even arguing for? I just stated the facts. Right. This, is, this kind of creeped me out. But yeah, you also have people like, for example, for that clubhouse stories, story, sorry, who commented in the replies on Twitter that, for example, that wasn't true or that uh, other political parties were doing it, you know, like, okay, if other political parties are doing it, that makes it okay. <laughs> I don't know. Right. <laughs> so, I, yeah, I, you get a bit of pushback. So you, so you do, but I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that this does not necessarily have any change in the way you're covering your news. That you, you're, I mean, that's one example that's maybe just a very, it could be almost a super, it could be just a silly person who just find, finds you online and decides to harass you a bit. But that, have you had to, in a way, measure how you cover Hezbollah? I know that you're new to reporting in Lebanon, although you have been reporting for, for much longer than six months. But that, do, do you find yourself needing to take precautions? And I, it could be first, whether it's the pomegranate story, which is just listing the facts, or whether it's even writing this piece about Hezbollah and Clubhouse. Are you, are you inclined to take precautions in something that is a very, very heated and sensitive uh, debate? Yes, of course, of course. Um, mm. You want whatever you write. First of all, you wanna take precautions as a journalist because you don't want people to think that you're biased. Right. Um, like this person who thought like, oh, why are you targeting a specific group, etc. So you want everything to, to be as objective as possible, uh, which is why I actually reached to their spokesperson for this article for comment, but he didn't reply to me. Um, so this is objectivity is one issue here because you don't want people to perceive you as biased. And another one is that you're afraid that uh, um, you're afraid for yourself, of course. I'm glad you're being honest about this. I, I think it's hard to actually say it the way you're saying it right now in that very honest way. So, so you have a, a, you do sense some fear on at least reporting tangentially or directly when it comes to the issue of Hezbollah. Yeah, I mean, I've never personally received threats. But it's just, you know, you see what happens around you. So you don't want to, you know in that situation how are you able to really handle this when you obviously you're part of the story i mean you are in the story and it's your story too what does it take to actually have this fair analysis and i'm asking in a very almost silly way what does it take to detach yourself 
Are you, are you covering terrain that does not impact you directly? Or if it, is, if it impacts you directly, you're able to cope with it and still report on it? Or is it really just a, you're doing your job as it should be done, doesn't matter where you are? You could be in a different country, you'd have the same approach? Because I'll, I'll tell you from my side, I don't know how to do what you do. I live in reflexivity, which is really just, I live in the personal and I, I can't imagine it otherwise. And a lot of things are personal in this country. So I, I dive deep in that direction, but obviously I'm not a journalist, you are, and you're, you're a reporter, news reporter. So what, what does it take to do what you do? Uh, <laughs> that's a tough question. Um, you know, actually I have a, a friend of mine who reports on Iraq and she is Iraqi. Um, and before becoming a reporter here in Lebanon, I had asked her the same thing. Like, how do you report mm. on Iraq? It's so hard. And, you know, the situation there is worse than in Lebanon because you have, you still have attacks, you still have suicide bombers. And she told me sometimes I try to think that it's not my country. Mm. She tries to detach herself, but she, she doesn't live in Iraq. So now when I'm here, I can't really apply that advice. <laughs> So she covers Iraq, but from away from Iraq, which is yeah. in a way you're still one step removed. But you're yeah. in the story, you live in the story, and I run into you. Oftentimes, exactly. sometimes I think I don't know whether or not you're on your way to cover a story as well. So you're you're here, and you're in a way reflecting on something that is is obviously going to hit hard. It's going to hit home. So I mean, mm-hmm. is there a craft or is there a methodology, if you will, to to just because you're not as Hmm. I'll say this in a, maybe in a better way. I don't think of you as a citizen journalist. You're not mm-hmm. a you're not an activist. So you're not in a way pushing through any agenda per se. You're simply reporting the facts as they are. I think that's very different than being an activist and a citizen journalist who's there to push an idea forward. I I, I don't read that when I read your your pieces, whether they're this this uh, this um, clubhouse piece or for that matter. A, maybe a more controversial piece, which was the smugglers piece, which came out quite some time ago, but I thought that was a brilliant piece. You're embedded with the Lebanese army. You're talking to smugglers. And you're getting to know them by name and you're sort of, you're gauging their mind on the lucrative industry that all that is smuggling. But I would say the smuggler story doesn't necessarily hit hard. doesn't hit home because that is something you can detach yourself from. It's the borders. It's that black market that we don't experience directly but the other other topics the economic misery the political paralysis the violence the impact of all that has happened here in beirut i think i mean that it's hard to detach yourself from that so as much as you want to say about it i'm just curious how how you do it what i try to do is to focus on these topics also like as topics of interest, like it, this is something interesting happening in my country. People should know about it. Mm. So I try to, you know, twist it in, in a more optimistic way. Even if something horrible is happening, well, the world needs to know about it. And I'm writing about it in English. So this, in a way, can help, I guess. Right. Um, this, is, this is how I try to do it. But, uh, but no, of course, I think it's very hard to detach yourself from what you're covering. For my I feel own... in a way. Oh, please, yes, go sorry. ahead. No, no, please go ahead. Uh, no, I feel in a way. I think we spoke about this once. 
that uh, I feel almost guilty for coming back because coming back at a time when a lot of people are having to actually leave. So because I've had that privilege of coming back after 10 years abroad, um, you know, I have to make the most of it. I can't, can't spend my time, you know, I don't know, feeling bad or letting things get to me. This is what I try to remind myself of. Like you have, you have a chance here, you're next to your family. Uh, and I try to look at, to look at the positive side. Is it, is it October 17 that, that makes you want to come back? Is there something about the recent protests that lured you back? Or is it just something yeah. where you didn't want to be abroad anymore? It didn't matter what was happening. Because I'm wondering what the draw is to actually come home. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned it, actually, because it is October 17. We had so much hope, you know, the whole diaspora from abroad, we were just rooting for people here because we had hope that, you know, a system that had pushed us all abroad uh, will finally, you know, collapse and that we'll have the Lebanon that we always wanted, where there's no corruption, where there's more equality, where we have a chance. Mm. Um, and I remember actually my sister and I, uh, we came back especially for a protest. Um, I don't remember what it was. I think it was Independence Day. I don't remember. I think it was Independence Day when there was these big events and yes. came back especially her from Dubai and me from Abu Dhabi just because we wanted to be part of it because, you know, we were so proud of what was happening in, in our country. Um, you know, that was before... You know, before uh, before people lost hope, really. So it really um, is. It's October seventeen. That 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 is really the sort of the spark that brought you yeah. back. You know, I'm and I'm I'm glad I'm glad. It's sort of it's narrowed down a bit to that event because I was here when the protests were happening. Mm -hmm. I think that was the it it happened on its own. I decided that I didn't want to be away anymore. I had lived a life of going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth all the time. I think deep down, I realized that, no, I want to be here for now, as long as I can. So I think it did have that impact on, on many of us that weren't sure. And yet we knew why we were pushed away for all the right reasons, pushed away. We, you can rationalize it, why you would want to leave. Yeah. Yet emotionally, you want to come home and you want to experience something that, that seems to be positive, but of course becomes very complicated. How do you get your data today? And the reason I ask is because I've, I've approached the subject with different journalists, different reporters. COVID is still a major concern. We just had a 24 hour, we just had a three day lockdown, uh, largely unenforced, but still lockdown. Um, I mean, there is technically still every day things close relatively early for Beirut. Um, and the politics that we experienced on the streets are not happening on the streets for the most part. Sometimes there are certain events that do take place, mm -hmm. but largely not. So is your, do you look for information, the places that I'm looking, which is simply social media? Are you using Clubhouse to sort of find a story and then report and kind of put it together? I'm, I'm curious how you would work your way through the system right now as it is, 
and come up with these regular pieces? You know, weirdly, in yeah. Lebanon, you, have, you never have like you never have this. Um, you're never short on uh, on pitches. You always have like too many ideas. For mm. example, I remember when I first got here, it was um, I think in November, and in December. Um, I started noticing that people um, had all these uh, Mune baskets and that Mune was trendy all of a sudden, which is so funny to me because I don't remember it being like that when I was growing up. It was like right. something that old ladies would do in the villages. Yeah. So, you know, that was an idea for an article. <laughs> like, why is Mune trendy now? Like these preserves and pickles that people uh, in Lebanon do for, for you, uh, you're, you're using online lexicon trending. So do you, this is something you see on the streets, and you're like, "Oh, that's a story that I want to cover." Yeah. So it's just literally. Yeah. Th- this one, uh, you could see it a bit online because some people were promoting their Mune pages on Instagram and on Twitter. Mm. But you could see it in real life too, because my mom was bringing in jars, you know. Right. And uh, <laughs> my friends were giving me like advice for the best Mune person to go to. So I think just you know speaking to people, talking to people uh, around you, keeping an eye open. Also, um, I think obviously you have to you have to look at local media, um, and TV actually helps a lot because. Uh, they just jump on something that's happening right now, right away. And you can see it in something that maybe you haven't thought of. Um, so I remember, for example, there was that story that, I don't remember if it was AFP or another wire agency that they did on the missing manholes. Yes, uh, I, mm, I don't remember which one it was either. Yes, but I remember that story. Yeah, like that's something... Um, that you would hear about from people, but that you also saw on your local TV, like a month before that story was published in English, you already had like local chance talking about it. So you you have to listen to people around you. You have to get the TV. <laughs> so I, uh, you're the first person who's admitted that they still watch TV. I've done so many episodes. People dismiss it all the time. They don't look at it. It's off all the time, but you're watching TV. Um, to be fair, my mom is watching TV, and whenever oh. there's something good on TV, she tells me, "Ah, yeah, LBC." You know, open your TV on LBC. There's something going on. I, I love that. This is how you're getting your stories. Your mom is screaming your name. <laughs> that's that's great. <laughs> Across the house. Right. Uh, do, you, yeah. do you? And then you show up with your notepad and pen. You're like, "Oh, that must be a great story." Yes. Let me see. Yes. <laughs> So you, so you do depend, in a sense, on local media that yes. I largely don't turn to. I, I don't remember the last time I turned on the TV. <laughs> I actually, so I'm, I'm glad you're admitting that you perhaps use it to a certain degree. No, I think it's very important to have local media. Um, they, they, they usually notice the small things first because, you know, they're reporting for local, even regional uh, audiences sometimes so things that people who like me you know are working for a regional or an international outlet um, might miss they won't miss it but so I, I, is, it, is there look at them and support them but in terms of measuring that the tv sort of uh news whatever is i mean that that nice description that you provided 
and alternative media that is local. So I'll just give you an example. Uh, something that's being discussed in LBC News, any, any way possible, and then Daraj Media covering something else or mm. whatever it is. It could be Megaphone. It could be, could be somebody on Twitter that has a presence online. All these names are familiar here. Do, do you find yourself using one more than the other or is it all oh, kind of... Yes, of course. I um, Sorry, I didn't mention that before because I, for me it was obvious. But yes, of course, social media is very important for that too. But more than social media, I, I mean, less social media, more um, the independent media sort of yeah. platforms. Is, is, yeah, they... sorry. When, I say, when you say independent media, it's because I follow them all on Twitter. Oh, of course, yeah. This is where, <laughs> this is where I see their stuff on it. Right, of course. It. Actually, that day. Uh, yeah. Sorry. No, you're right. You're right. You don't see them on TV, obviously. Yeah. They're online. Yeah. Yes. Independent media have a different perspective as well. And it's important to it's important to follow them because, uh, I mean, outlets are very politicized in Lebanon. Like, you know, who owns which TV, which, you know, newspaper. Mm-hmm. Um, so to have like a few independent outlets, that's... Uh, that's actually pretty rare. And I think it's pretty recent too. So right. that's also something I look out for, of course. I think Megaphone and Deraj are the two, uh, two biggest ones. Maybe there are others that I don't know about. I mean, they definitely, they dominated the protests, Meg- Megaphone mm-hmm. in particular. But I think they are the two perhaps most visible uh, independent platforms. During COVID, you have a lot of, you know, misinformation that can circulate on social media and on WhatsApp groups and convince people that they shouldn't be taking vaccines, for example, or that COVID is a hoax. I think these things really bother me, um, especially that they affect like real people. Um, Like, I don't know if if someone in my family doesn't want to take a vaccine because of something they've read on WhatsApp. This, this is very upsetting, you know, when you're trying to actually get information out. I mean, I, I don't work on COVID specifically, but, you know, it's very frustrating for journalists, I think, to see that specifically. Um, when it comes to, like, attention spam and social media, uh, I think social media is a good way to to try and, when you're a journalist, to to get people interested in the news. But at the same time, you have to you have to convince people to read the whole news, <laughs> which right. is something completely different, um, and not just you know read the headline. Um, I don't know what the solution is. Um, I mean, I'm glad that like you see people who are interested in the news on Twitter, for example, who go to Twitter just to get the news. Mm. Um, but I think there needs to be a bit more awareness of what is news and what isn't news, what's someone's opinion. Right. Um, you know what I mean? And what outlets you can't actually trust. <laughs> but I mean, I know I'm not going to ask you to offer... This is, this is the type of thing that, that really bothers me. Sure. No, no. And I wouldn't... It would be unfair for me to ask you how would you solve that dilemma? That's a huge problem. But in your mm-hmm. in your interaction with 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 long form information, long form analysis, and then that short t- short attention span type of catchy, whatever it is, Instagram story or, or tweet. Are you 
are you able to, as a journalist, do you find yourself using that information? I mean, are you part of, is it inescapable that you're going to have to, in a way, interact with what is perhaps less, uh, less rewarding, less, less thought through analysis? And that's sort of like a, a compensation you have to make because attention spans have, have gone down. Um, do you mean like, do I have to adapt what I do for people to, to like get people interested? Even in your writing, I mean, is there pressure to limit in a way what you're doing so that it could be more social media friendly? And that, that, that there's a cost in terms of that maybe not everything is, is talked through or, or written about and that in a way it's sacrificing information for more clicks. Mm. So at the newspaper I work for, I've never had that pressure, to mm. be fair. Mm. Uh, I've been pretty lucky in that respect. Mm-hmm. Um, but before, yes, I've had like, um, I used to work before for a women's magazine in Arabic uh, for a brief period of time and everything was SEO based. Like They didn't want actual information. They just wanted SEO as in like, everything that's clickable on the internet uh, that if you if you type a word on google like the article has to be the first one to appear or else you know your work doesn't matter sorry aya what what so, is what is seo i i forget the the different what does it stand for it's a search engine optimization it oh, right, means right. like <laughs> yes yeah 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 of course so like these uh, uh, the keywords or whatever google sort of uh, it has to be google friendly right yeah. right right yeah this is very frustrating. Um, so I, I have experienced that before, but mm. uh, um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad I'm not in that situation anymore. Well, that's good to hear that you don't find yourself needing to. There's no pressure to. You're able to write whatever it, the, the appropriate length to cover that issue. There's yeah, no pressure. Yeah. No, I mean, there's no pressure to be like, social media i don't know to write for social media you have to just get the information that's accurate and get it out there then it's going to depend on the format of what you're writing like if you're writing a news article then it's best for it to be like short and straight to the point but if you're writing an investigation or you know an analysis something more in depth uh you're you're gonna need more words of course you can't uh, can't write it in um, in like 200 300 words you know, I guess that at the end of the day, that is the basic difference between an activist journalist or a citizen journalist and just a traditional reporter. That may, that may, maybe the activist journal or the citizen journalist would use social media more only in terms of promoting or, or pushing through an idea, an opinion. Mm-hmm. But the reporter, the, and you, you considered yourself earlier at least trying to be an objective reporter, maybe doesn't have to go down that road simply because that's not required. You're not taking the stand. social media. I use Twitter a lot. Mm. Um, but uh, but I, I mean, I'm not required to do that, you know? <laughs> right, right. I'm just addicted to Twitter. Well, we all are. It, it actually helps with my work a lot. You know, we've discussed that before, like, looking at what people are talking about on social media and also like following um, 
either local media or independent media on there. It does help a lot. It helped us meet. I mean, I yes, think you also meet people. <laughs> yeah, and and in a way, I think these are the that's that's the other side to it, which is it it connects in very special ways too. And mm-hmm. I learned about your reporting only through Twitter. I don't think I I would have known. I mean, I I look at the national regularly, but I I don't I don't think I recognized your name right away. And then I mm-hmm. saw it shared on Twitter with the name attached, and I was like, oh, that's just that's another reporter at the national. And it, yeah, I mean, it makes it much easier to be able to see the story or to, to engage it quicker. So in that way, maybe that that's the flip side to it. But like you said, you don't need to, that it's something that's, um, it's the old fashioned form of reporting and, and articles and, and long form analysis that that's still a, that is a website heavy. Uh, and if they still exist, sometimes the, the actual paper, wherever it's published and, and printed, that's maybe it's it's the old way of doing things, but I, I use it regularly and I learn from it. And I, I appreciate your time. I, I know you're a busy person. I, you're always writing. You're always sort of producing content. So it means a lot that you're willing to give me some of your time to pick your brain on, on very, very, very difficult terrain. So thank you, Aya. Thank you for having me here. It was really a, a nice conversation to have. And I'll add one. I'll add. I'll add one thing. First yeah. podcast for you, right? So, yes. boom. <laughs> With many more to come. <laughs> take care, Aya. Thank you. Take care. Thanks for listening and watching, and a friendly reminder to support this podcast by contributing through Patreon or PayPal. All links are in the details box. Until next time, I'm Rani Shatah, and this is the Beirut Banyan.